0: As we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel, our scripture for today comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up onto a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Behold Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with them. And Peter answered and he said to Jesus, "Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." While he was still speaking, behold a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came from the cloud saying, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him." And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and he said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first. And will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they didn't know him. But they did to him whatever they wished. Likewise the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. And when they had come to the multitude. A man came to him. Kneeling down. And saying, Lord. Have mercy on my son. For he is an epileptic. And he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and he said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And when Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, Why can we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. When they had come to Capernaum those who received the temple tax came to Peter and they said Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter said yes. And when they had come into the house Jesus anticipated Peter saying What do you think Simon From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes From their sons or from their daughters? And Peter said From strangers. I'm sorry, from their sons or from strangers. And Peter said from strangers. And Jesus said to him, "Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. This is the word of the Lord." Now, this all happens after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And not only does he confess uh, Jesus as the Christ, but Peter also says, uh, leading up to this passage here, Jesus says, Some of you standing here aren't even going to see death until you see the Son of Man come into his glory. We talked about that last week, and here is this first glorious picture of Jesus Christ being the Son of God in this magnificent and frankly mind bending passage of Scripture that we get this transfiguration that happens on the mountain. The fulfillment, of course, of Jesus saying, uh, "Some of you will not see death until I come into my kingdom," is the cross. It is the resurrection, the means by which God would accomplish His redemptive purposes, make a way for us to be reconnected to God, and, of course, ultimately prove that Jesus is who He claimed to be. And so, this passage is this magnificent and, you know, miraculous phenomena. Where again, Jesus is affirmed as the Son of God. The same language is used here. Some of you will recognize it from Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so again, he's being affirmed as the Son of God. And before I continue with this teaching, I want to briefly say, very quickly, for those of you who may be here this morning, exploring Christian faith, wondering how in the world can these ancient texts be trusted or be reliable, um, I don't want to get into this Deeply, but I just want to provoke you by inviting you to consider something. We have four accounts of the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have four accounts of another uh, bibliography of a, a very famous person, Tiberius, one of the greatest leaders in all of Roman history. How is it that we have the same amount of biographies with infinitely more content and detail about a carpenter from a backwater town in the Middle East that we have no business knowing about him if he's just a carpenter from a backwater town. How is it we have as much ancient bibliography about him as we do one of the greatest leaders of the entire Roman Empire, an empire that reigned for a thousand years? And not only that, but what do any of these authors have to gain by writing any of these things and claiming that Jesus Christ is God and that he did these, frankly, mind-bending, miraculous things? You know, the accounts we have of the life of Christ have been written much, much earlier to his actual life than the accounts we have of Tiberius. They came much, much later. And the earliest account we have of bibliography of the life of Tiberius was written by Proteculus, someone who was on the payroll. So there is particular motivation for writing history in a particular way if you benefit from the way in which you write the history. But what is the benefit, what was the historical benefit of writing this way about Jesus? Uh, All of those who Followed him. His disciples were martyred. And he might say, yes, but they were trying to mess with Rome and this was politically motivated. And if you wrote about Jesus in a, in a legendary way, then perhaps, you know, you could create a ruckus. But the truth of the fact is no self-respecting Roman or Greek would ever believe this. It's not constructed in a way that they would believe it. It's constructed in a way that they would laugh at it. So if you're exploring Christian faith and you happen to come here on Transfiguration Sunday and you're like, wow, what do I do with this mind-bending text? I just wanted wanted to um, encourage you to consider that Christian faith is not just believing a theological claim. It is actually, at the core, believing a historical claim. It is believing that the death of Jesus Christ under Pontius Pilate, three days later, that tomb being empty... And then that turning the Roman, Greco-Roman world upside down is a historical fact. And it is on the basis of that fact that Christians around the world, we don't check our brains at the door and say, you know, we're not going to think deeply about this. Rather, we think very deeply about it in the sense that if the resurrection is true and we believe it is, then that means that all of scripture is true and we must bend our knee to try and understand how is it that it's true. So I just wanted to encourage you in that if this happened to be your first Sunday. And uh, this text just seems way out there. Uh, this morning, as we consider just the, the majesty of this, for those of us who have come to worship, just, we, we revel in our Christian faith at the magnitude of Jesus. I want us to think about three things I think we see um, in this uh, passage here. Uh, the first is the demonstration of glory on the mountain. And then the second thing is the purpose of the glory in the valley. And then lastly, the implications of God's glory for our future. So first, there's this demonstration of glory on the mountain. And there's some really intentional language that we're supposed to uh, you know, recall some things from the Old Testament here. They take six days uh, to go up this mountain. Uh, six, day, six days of preparation before they're led up to the mountain. And this makes us think about the six days that Moses prepared himself before he goes up Mount Sinai. Moses goes up Mount Sinai where God reveals himself. And after six days, the some of the disciples go up this mountain where Jesus is revealed as God himself, the Son of God himself. And in the Moses account in Exodus, Moses goes on the mountain and his face is bright and dazzling because he's in the presence of God. And here, Jesus' countenance is bright and dazzling because he is the Son of God. And we recount the same presence in Exodus as we see here in uh, Matthew's record. And then Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus in this majestic moment. And this is revealing that Jesus Christ is the apex of all of redemptive history. He is the apex of everything that God has been doing from the beginning. He is the fulfillment of. Of the law, and he is the fulfillment of the prophets. He is God's. He is the fulfillment of God's wise word. He is the fulfillment of God's, He is. He is God's final word. That Jesus is the apex of everything that God has been uh, aiming to do throughout of all of Israel's history. And Jesus says this of himself later in Luke on the Emmaus road after his resurrection. Jesus says what is happening uh, here. That he says the relevance of it, where he explains on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, to his disciples, that he is the culmination of everything that is spoken in the law and the prophets and through the Psalms, all the things concerning himself. When I was in seminary, the uh, logo for our seminary, it was a Bible with a lock on it, and, then, and the key was a cross. And it was to remind the students that Jesus Christ is the key that opens up our understanding of the scriptures. He opens up our hearts. He opens up our eyes uh, to believe. He opens up absolutely everything. That ultimately the scriptures is a unified story. Bible in the Greek is biblios. It means library. It's 66 books in multiple different genres. Some of it we take literary, literally. Some of it is, is uh, poetry. Therefore we take it seriously. But not literally. But all of it. Culminates in this one story, this epic apex of Jesus Christ, the center of all creation, the center of all redemption, the Lord of all things. And so this is what we're seeing here. This is what the disciples are seeing, what we're seeing by extension. That everything is leading to Jesus. Everything culminates in Jesus. That in him is the rescue for humanity and the renewal for this created world of ours and for humanity. That in Jesus is, is culminating the life we wish we, we led that seems to be evading us. The world we wished we lived in that seems to be evading us. The love and the unity and the, and the wisdom of the peoples all around the world. It's just this life that we envision, the utopia that all of our politic political endeavors you know, aim to achieve, that is constantly evading us. It all culminates in Jesus Christ, the one who would come and bring rescue and renewal, the wise king. The only one uh, wise enough to put things right. The only one uh, who who can authoritative sit on the throne as the judge to say, I'm going to bring renewal to all of humanity. And that in the cross is this majestic intersection of justice and mercy. And this is all happening in this glorious image on the mountain. As we see that Jesus Christ is actually the one who fulfills the requirements of God's law for us. And he is the fulfillment of God's promises towards us. This is the glorious significance of all of this. This is why on Sundays we worship and are thankful for the grace of Christ. Because the wise and loving standard of God's law is that we would be walking in a perfect love and a perfect care for our fellow man. Our fellow woman, And frankly, we fail at it. And so Christ has come and fulfilled what we could not fulfill on ourselves. And so all of this is seen in this image of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And then in verse 4, while all of this is happening, Peter, like us, starts planning things. We've got to do something with this. He starts talking. He starts making assumptions. He's got schematics out. I'm going to build some tabernacles here. I relate to this. I don't know if you relate to that, but boy, do I ever relate to bias to action. And then later going oh, maybe I should have paused. But this is uh, not as unreasonable for moderns. It just seems crazy. Peter's like, let's just build some tabernacles. But it is reasonable for Peter in his thinking because in the Feast of Booths, you would build tabernacles to dwell and enjoy and worship the God of all creation. So what happens here is Peter is trying to make sense of this divine, majestic moment by relating to it according to the old promises, according to the old covenant, the covenant that he's living in presently. But Jesus is forging a new covenant. Jesus is forging new promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. And Peter's still grappling with what Christ the Messiah actually means. He's, he's still pretty convinced this is a political takeover. Because that's how you change things. Globally and humanly speaking. The same stuff keeps rising to the top. Politics and power. And how do you achieve that? Bloodshed. Or economic bloodshed. Or sanctions bloodshed. Bloodshed. This is how the kingdoms of the world have always asserted themselves. So... Peter's still thinking this is a political takeover. He can't possibly conceive the blood that's going to be shed is the blood of God. That Jesus Christ has come, not because he's a bloodthirsty king. He's going to come and shed his own blood. So Peter's like, hey, we got to start. we got to build some. We've got to worship. We've got to dwell in this. We've got to enjoy this. And then God interrupts Peter with his presence and his voice. Wow. Just a divine shushing. The, the greatest shush. In the history of all humanity. You know how you get shushed and you're embarrassed for being shushed? This is, this is the biggest shushing in human history. And God interrupts Peter. And uh, Peter wants to speak. God wants him to listen. Uh, Peter naturally assumes this moment requires some activity from him. But God speaking reveals that this moment is actually about what Christ has come to do for him and for us. And uh, interestingly, Peter wants to stay in the glory at the top. That's the purpose of the tabernacle. To like dwell and enjoy it. That's a good thing. That's an understandable thing. Let's dwell here. Let's enjoy this. Let's just stay in this divine vibe. Let's just stay here. This is, let's enjoy it. But in, in contradiction to Peter's idea of the glory being enjoyed at the top, Jesus intends to take the glory to the bottom. Which leads us to the, how the passage flows from the demonstration of the glory on the mountain to the purpose of the glory in the valley. Because they, they come down off the mountain. So Jesus' purpose is contra- contradicted to what Peter thought, and I think what I would have thought, probably what we would have thought. That Jesus Christ, full of compassion, he's come to deliver us from the powers of darkness, the destruction of darkness, the eroding powers of darkness on humanity, and ultimately the finality of death. And so what I find this interesting contrast here is that while some of Jesus' followers are enjoying the wonder and the peace and the glory experience on the mountain, some of his followers are dealing with hell in the valley. And that sounds quite a bit like life. And uh, we don't have a God of indifference when we're tormented and we're going through hell. And some of the disciples, they were going through hell. They're down there dealing with this, this demon-possessed young, uh, uh, young man. And, uh, but we have a God who comes into our hell. Gossip, the gospel is an act of sheer grace. It's not an act to leave humanity to, you know, to our devices. If God did leave humanity to our devices, it just said... You've rejected me. Uh, He'd be perfectly just to just leave us to our own devices. But what we see in the gospel is God in this, the demonstration of his glory, the demonstration of his majesty, of his splendor, the demonstration of the intent of the law, the intent of the prophets. The intent of the redemptive heart of God is to deliver us from darkness and destruction and sorrow and hell. And the glory, it never distracted Jesus from compassion for the broken, which is amazing. Because he is fully God, but he's also fully man. And I would imagine in, that, in the mountain, in that experience that we can't really conceive of, but in that experience of being in the divine presence of God in a way that Jesus was enjoying, I can't imagine it would have been a ru- in a rush to be like, let's get back down there and deal with the demons. But the glory never distracted Jesus from the compassion. For the broken. Compassion for the broken is the expression of his glory. And so then in verse 16, the disciples can't cast out this demon. You have this jarring return from this mountaintop experience to the real world. And then in verse 17, Jesus rebukes his disciples. He calls them a faithless and perverse generation. That's not, that's not directed at Canaan, that's directed at his disciples. He calls them faithless and perverse. What's going on? What's the problem here? Is the problem that they don't have white belt faith, and if they had black belt faith, they would have been able to cast out the demon? No, that's not the problem. Uh, Some of your translations will say, twisted generation. And the twisted, (coughs) it means uh, to be distorted into the wrong shape. It's the way you would say, you've twisted my words. It means something's being misinterpreted here. So what Jesus is upset at is... uh, not that there's not enough volume in their faith. It's that they have the wrong object of their faith. Clearly something's gone wrong and they're focused uh, not on the trust. They need a trust transfer. They're not, they're not trusting in God in some way, somehow. Walking with Jesus, seeing his miracles, knowing they've been empowered to do this. Somehow they've made this about themselves. I, we don't, the Bible doesn't say how they did it, but we know they did it. Because Jesus says, your faith is twisted. The volume's not a problem. It's not, hey, you're a white belt. But when you start bumping up through this, you know, spiritual growth and you get up to black belt faith, that's where the demon cat, that's where the exorcisms happen, guys. No, that's not, he's just said, if we back up, not too far in Matthew, he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, actually, he says it here. Verse, uh, uh, says it like in verse uh, 10. If you had mustard seed faith located in the right place in Jesus, this would be possible. But they don't even have mustard seed faith located in Jesus. So something went sideways here. And uh, also we need to remember that Jesus did specifically empower them to do this. So don't feel guilty like this has been a low exorcism, weep for you, and I've got to up my spiritual game, and how many miracles have I, you know. Jesus specifically called his disciples to do this. This is a specific call. So you and I would do well to sort of sit in this and think about personal application. I think that's good. Provided that we don't superimpose the apostles' call and, and assume that that's our call. Where are you and I called? You know, how is it that we walk out our mustard seed faith in Christ? This is all about just tremendous, tremendous dependence. Where are you standing? That's your call. We're on this side of the cross where Christ has accomplished all things and therefore we live to his glory in everything that we're doing. If you have small children, you're trying to raise them in the ways of God. You're teaching them to worship, to come into church and to understand what it is to participate in liturgy. That's your call. There's a season where it's crazy. You got to use the back, the kids are on the ground and 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 in the early years it it feels more like distraction than formation. But at some point as a parent, this is your call. You've got to move from distraction to actual formation. You can't give them snacks and treats until they're 12 years old and then be like, why don't my kids want to worship Jesus in church? So what's your call? Many of you don't have children. You're not called, we're not all called to have children. Being, marriage, being married is not God's highest and best plan for people. So you can live a fulfilled single life. You don't need to be married. right? So what is your call as a single person to just use your vocation and your gifts for the glory of God? Make make the city flourish precisely because you live on that street, precisely because you work in that particular office. What is, what is that call? What does it look like in your recreation? What does it look like in your life? What does it look like if you're a teenager right now and you're wrestling with future and plans and sets of gifts and abilities? And What does that look like? What does it just look like to just trust God, to trust that your life is in His hand? You're in university, uh, many of you. To know that he's on the other side of every decision you make, working it out for the good of your salvation, for the good of his glory. The call. It's not something that should paralyze us. Ah, What's the call of God in my life? Where are you standing? That's your call. Be faithful. What has he called you to do in this moment? Love him. Love his ways. Be faithful. We don't need to be fearful and paralyzed about this. But this is a specific call. He specifically told the disciples to do this. And now they've made it about that somehow. We don't know how. And you and I can make things about us too. And not trust in him. But this is all about dependence. In verse 21, it says, Jesus says, you know, this kind only comes out by uh, prayer and, and fasting. And that was added later. And the reason I bring it up is because uh, <clears throat> it's, con- it's congruent with things that Jesus said other times. Again, prayer and fasting is all about dependence. Prayer about dependence, fasting is about dependence. The oldest manuscripts don't have that line in it. So at some point, uh, the church added that in. But again, it's the, 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 uh, the truth of the passage is co- coherent. It's not different. We're not introducing new ideas. And I say that as well uh, because sometimes uh, criticism of the New Testament is oh, man, you can't trust this because one, one gospel writer writes it one day, another one uses a different phrase or a different line. That only adds to the authenticity of. ...the human record of that was su- superimposed divinely by the Holy Spirit... ...the dual authorship of the Scripture. That the Scripture is superimposed by the Holy Spirit. That there's nothing in here that God did not intend for us to have. And we don't believe the Bible descended down from the clouds. We understand that it was written by humans... ...who really saw what Jesus really did and really said. And so, therefore, the Gospel writers will record things in different ways... ...because they have theological reasons for that emphasis... Or, in examples like this, uh, somewhere very, very early on, perhaps first century, uh, sometime in, sometime in uh, Christendom, that line got added. But it only emphasizes what's already here. Radical dependence on Jesus. Let's move to the final thing. Because this is where I think we can be encouraged in what Jesus calls mountain-moving faith. Right? He said it in verse 20. He says, uh, "If you have faith as a mountain," he's being hyperbolic. They just—they just came down a mountain. He's probably pointing at it. If faith is a mountain, you can. He, he, and he's talking about again this utter dependence. There were two times I said this last week that Jesus referred to somebody's faith. It's great. There's two times in the, when Jesus referred to someone's faith as it amazed him. Once it was a Roman centurion, and another time it was a Canaanite woman, and th- those, those two. Those two. Folks, Jesus says, I'm amazed by this great faith. So how do you define faith that's so great it amazes Jesus Christ? Answer, utter dependence. We want to make great faith about competence. Theological and spiritual competence. It's about utter childlike dependence. That will, of course, naturally, through a life of discipleship, breed all sorts of spiritual and theological competence. But that's not what makes it great. It's... Utter dependence. So, the implications of God's glory for our future. <coughs> After the demonstration of glory on the mountain and the purpose of the glory delivering from darkness in the valley. The implications of God's glory for the future. This Having the knowledge of a life-changing inheritance, uh, it gives us freedom for how we live our lives today. How we face the trials and the challenges and the unknowns on Monday. This is kind of an unlikely ending it seems, to this passage. You've got glorious transfiguration on a mountain, casting out demons in the valley. Little talk about pan taxes. What? How did how we get here? First of all, Matthew's a tax collector, so he's like, <laughs> we're going to just use a little tax parable to wrap up this section on the divinity of Jesus. And it's interesting why this is here. It seems totally unrelated. What, why are we talking about temple taxes? Um, but in verse 25, Jesus takes the conversation because they show up, the, the Pharisees show up, they're like, hey, do you guys pay the temple tax or what? The temple tax was simple it was a few dollars of, of, of that day that everybody gave to upkeep the temple. And um, Jesus takes the conversation away in verse 25 for a minute. From temple worship and temple taxes, and he expands it to civil life and civic taxes. He uses the phrase in verse 25, kings of the earth. Hey, Simon, do the kings of the earth, so now we're talking about kingdoms and law and ways of life. Who do they get the taxes from? Do they tax their children or do they tax the strangers? And he says in verse 26, the sons are free. And on the mountain, he demonstrated he's the son. In the valley casting out the demons, he demonstrates he's the son. Glorified on the mountain. Mind-bending experience. Jesus Christ, the culmination of redemptive history. Smash cut to, hey, you're going to chip in? You're going to chip in for the temple tax? you going to pay your temple tax? Cosmic humility in Jesus. that he's not like... I'm going to zap-fry you guys right now. I am the temple. But he is the temple. I'm going to zap-fry you guys right now. I am the great high priest. I am the sacrifice. He is all of those things. But look at the humility of Jesus. What does he say in verse 27? Lest we offend them. And when I read that, I stopped. I was like, since when is Jesus worried about offending people? Not often. But then I thought about it. And I was like, well... This is jaw-dropping humility, because he is the priest, he is the temple, he is the sacrifice. But also, when we think about when Jesus offended, and I started going back through all the places Jesus offended, here's what we find. When it comes to the traditions of men, he will flip tables. Spoiler alert, he's going to flip some tables. When it comes to the law of God, he's not abolishing it. He's not flipping it. He's fulfilling it. So he pays the temple tax according to the law. Because he has come to fulfill the law. And then in an act that brings this whole passage full circle. Proving that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Who came to take away the sins of the world. He doesn't ask Judas to hand over a couple coins. Could have easily been done. He summons the only fish in Galilee. That ate a few coins. Swallowed them up as when they glistened like minnows when they fell from a fisherman's pocket Sinking slowly in the water. The whole thing is hilarious It's hilarious that Jesus chose to pay the temple tax this way I will fulfill the law, but here's how I will fulfill the law Only fish in the old Sea of Galilee that swallowed some coins If you are trying to concoct a legend to get philosophical Greeks and Romans to believe that Jesus is the Christ, to believe that he is the Son of God, this is not how you write compelling, heroic mythology. This is how a tax collector records history. In closing, I want to return to Peter's idea of glorifying and enjoying and dwelling for a quick second. Peter's desire for glorifying and enjoying and dwelling, it wasn't wrong. His timing was wrong. For you and I today, on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, the timing is right. If there's a king, there's a kingdom. There's a way of life. There's a true way of flourishing. And the king's way is the way of true freedom. And as his children, we are free. And in his kingdom... We desire to live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. May we weave the acts of glorifying and joying and meditating and dwelling into the rhythm of our lives, into the rhythm of our homes. May we live to the glory of the one who did not stay distant and cosmic and inaccessible on a mountain. Or in the cosmos. But he came down and he delivered us from darkness and sin and sorrow and the finality of death. May we go into the city with boldness and humble confidence and give a defense for the hope that we enjoy in him. Amen. Let's pray.